0: Thank you for today. We thank you for the rain and the green grass, and we do thank you, Heavenly Father, most of all for what your Son has done for us on the cross. And We ask today that we would think well upon this message to the church at Ephesus, Lord, and that we would learn to be those who are about, yes, your doctrine, but also love for you and one another. We pray that we would learn from what you have for the churches, that we would glean from these things so that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. And uh, that we would wait with perseverance until you come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can see this morning, we're going to start looking at the different churches. Christ, of course, addresses all seven churches. And these churches really are representative of of all of us. Now, notice today we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. specifically, the church at Ephesus. Now, when you read scholars on the church at Ephesus, the big problem that the church of Ephesus had was they're called the orthodox church that was loveless. Or maybe to put it more succinctly, they're the loveless orthodox church. And the idea there is that they had their doctrine down, but they had lost their first love. What I would do is I would submit to you a couple of caveats on that. And we'll be looking at this in depth here in a minute. But I would submit to you that true doctrine, if we understand our doctrine correctly, it leads us to love. And we're going to be looking at that concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In other words, if you don't love Christ and you don't love your brother or sister in Christ, it's because you have a deficient doctrine. You don't have an orthodox doctrine. That's number one. Number two, there is a way to hold to orthodoxy and yet be dead. In other words, you know the right answers, you know the truth, you just don't want anything to do with it. Uh, Rudolf Boltmann would be a great example of this. He could teach you precisely what the New Testament taught, but he didn't believe a lick of it. And so those are the things that we have to watch out for. Yes, if we have our doctrine down, we're going to love Christ, his promises, and the saints. Now, before we get into this, though, let me get into a couple of verses that we did not finish last time. Remember we left off in verses 19 through 20? And that was where John was actually commissioned to write. Now, the reason these two verses are important is because they give us the outline of the entire book of Revelation. So in other words, there's all these people that will say, well, the book of Revelation is broken into seven different parts, and they'll have all these different schemes, but the writer himself gives us the schematic and how he structured it. So listen to what he says. This is the commission Of John to write in verses 19 through 20 Jesus says therefore write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches now notice the structure here He talks about the things that you have seen. That's chapter 1 of Revelation. That's where we're leaving. Those are the things that you have seen. When you get to chapters 2 and 3, which are about the seven churches, those are the things that are. And then when you get to chapters 4 all the way through 22, that's what it's highlighted red: the things which will take place after these things. Now, why is that important? Because it, again, shows us that John himself structures the revelation to focus on the future day of the Lord. From chapter 4 all the way to 22 is the future day of the Lord. All right, now, further proof of that is, remember this phrase that I've highlighted read? You see it crop up again, sure enough, in chapter 4, verse 1. Again, it's a, it's a bookend, as it were, for the day of the Lord. Revelation 4, 1, John Says, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. So remember, he's caught up in his own spirit. He doesn't actually leave bodily, but he sees these things from the heavenly perspective then. And it's all the things concerning the day of the Lord. And then at the very end of the book, Revelation 22, again, we're claiming chapter 4 to chapter 22 is about the future. Look at chapter 22, verse 6. God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Now, I know I've mentioned this ad nauseum, but repetition is important. We saw that very phrase, where? In Revelation 1.1. The things that must take place soon. And remember, that was built off of Daniel 2.28. In Daniel 2.28, he had the vision of the kingdoms that would come about. And God told him that these are the things that must take place in the last days. Well, now we are in the last days. And so all of the events from chapter 4 to 22 are no longer in the last days because we're in the last days. They're soon. They're imminent. They're at hand. Okay, so that forms the structure of the entire book of Revelation. Is that clear? Uh, Does anybody have any thoughts or comments? Yeah, Jim. Uh, Chapters 2 and 3 are the things which are which is the seven churches. Exactly. Since those are the things which are, doesn't that preclude the seven churches being a disguised outline of church history going through, or is there a mixture there? You know, I I agree with you that they are not symbolic of the church age, as it were. I do think it's fair to say that the Jews and the, the, the biblical idea is corporate solidarity. What is said of the seven churches reflects something that God would say to all of us. And proof of that is the saying that you'll see to every seven church, every one of the seven churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember that, see, when you and I read that, we don't have this mindset of Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. But that was so ingrained in them. Hear, oh, so the point is, only those who really have ears to hear will hear, meaning you're only a believer. Only a believer is going to heed these things, but it is for all believers. And so I would say the message is really to all believers for all time, and I don't think that we can read too much into the fact that just because it's now or present, it doesn't have ramifications for all Christians. But I think you're right. It doesn't mean that, okay, church one, the church at Ephesus, has to do with the first 200 years of church history. You're exactly right. Yep. Well, anyway, so that's the structure. That's what I want you to see. Now, remember also, in, remember Daniel chapter 12, verse 9? You had Daniel be instructed by the Lord to seal up the vision. He was not to explain what was in the book or go any further. And he said, these things are for the last days. Well, it's interesting, in Revelation twenty two ten, the Lord says this to John. He says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Okay, so again, showing that these things really are imminent. Now, one other thing we have to address. Notice the imagery. Christ declares for us what the golden lampstands are. They're the seven churches. And notice he says that the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. But what we have to wrestle with is this. The angels here, it's very difficult to conceive that they must be angelic beings. And here's why. John is going to be commanded to write to these angels. And so wouldn't it be odd for John to write his message and then deliver it to an angel, this heavenly being, and then what is the heavenly being going to do with it, dispense it directly to the church? What we have to remember is that the term angelos, for angel, is often used for human messengers, okay? Now, The majority of the time, apart from what you see here, the seven churches, every time John uses angelos, he uses it 67 times in the book of Revelation, apart from his message to the seven churches, he'll be referring to heavenly beings. But I think the context is clear that here he's referring to human messengers who in turn take the book of Revelation that's given to John and dispense it then to the various churches. Does that make sense? Now, let me show you evidence of that. Let's look at our commendation of Ephesus. So, this is now John addressing the church at Ephesus. Listen to what it says. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. So, wouldn't it be somewhat absurd for John to be writing a message to a heavenly being? What's the heavenly being going to do with it? Okay? But it makes much more sense if we understand angel in light of a human messenger. Okay? Okay? Now, who had uh, I know? I had a Luke seven. Yeah, there we go. Luke seven twenty four. Everyone, oh, before you read, Pat, we got to get you on. Uh, we got to get you on tape here. And everybody, turn your Bibles, if you would, to 7, uh, Luke seven twenty four. Okay, Luke seven twenty four reads. When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Thank you. So do you notice the term, the phrase messengers from John? Messengers there is angelos. It's the identical term that's used here for angel. All right. The point is clearly in that context, they're not heavenly beings that are being referred to but purely humans, okay? You also had James 2.25, Pat? Yes. You're going to hear the same concept in James 2.25. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? There you go. So clearly there's evidence in the New Testament that Anglos is used for human messengers. I think that has to apply here in the context of the message to the seven churches. John is given the message. These human messengers then would dispense it to the churches in Asia Minor, and then by extension, we got those messages as well. Okay, so the way I would translate it is this. I would say to the human messenger of the church in Ephesus, right, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil, and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you have found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. What's very interesting is John is recording this commendation from the Lord to this church. Notice there's a series of three things. Let me see if I can point this out on the screen. Notice, first of all, he says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. And Then he says, and that you cannot tolerate. So that's the first three. Then he goes to the next three. He says, you can't tolerate evil men, one. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles, three, or two, rather. And then you found them to be false, number three. Now you have a third volume of three. He says, and you have perseverance, number one, and have endured for my namesake, number two, and have not grown weary. So you have three sets of three, and I think what's happening here is God is showing you really are commended in these things. Three different ways he's saying, look, this is really commendable that you hold to a doctrine where you are able to disprove these false apostles and show the wicked deeds, as I'll show you later, of these Nicolaitans. It really is commendable. Now, what's interesting is when Oh oh! I just kicked the bucket here. I know. I'm glad I'm not the only one that does that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do it a lot too. It's it's hard. We're kind of wedged up here. We're gonna we're gonna work on it though. We're gonna our set screws came out. They're they're stripped in here, so we got to get those redone. But uh, the the point being is, when we get to the rebuke of the church at Ephesus, God gives them three things. They are to remember, to repent and to do. Okay, and yeah, there's our concept, remember, again. And we're going to focus on that a little bit. So I just want you to see, though, when he commends them, he gives them three sets of three. So this is really commendable. Now, let's begin with the first three. Notice it says, I know your deeds. The term there is ergon. It's the term for works that's typically used in the New Testament. Now, here's how we want to conceive of works in the New Testament. In the New Testament, this ergon, works, is not just to be thought of As the things that you do, although they're not divorced from this concept, but it's a combination of what you believe and what you do. It's not either or, it's both and. So the works that are commendable in the New Testament writer's view are those that stem from good doctrine, belief in Christ, and lend themselves to good works. Think about it this way Abraham is justified by faith alone right? Genesis fifteen six. he believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, what does Abraham do in Genesis 22? But he acts on that faith. He's willing to sacrifice his son, his only son. Why? Because he believes that God will even raise him from the dead if need be. Because the Messiah is going to come from that son. So, what Abraham believed, he ends up acting upon. That's the idea of ergon or works in the New Testament. Okay, now sometimes the context will show you that either doctrine or specific acts are being focused upon. But generically speaking, the idea of works or deeds, ergon, is both what you believe and what you do. You can't divorce the two in the the mind of the New Testament writers. So he is commending them in this, which means that they really were believers, at least the initial batch of those at Ephesus. Notice he also says, I know your toil, Toil comes from capas. This is really difficult work. Yeah, really hard work. In fact, when I was an airline pilot, it reminded me, I flew with this guy for a whole month, and oftentimes we were scheduled for 14-hour duty days back then. It was hot. We didn't have any air conditioning. It would be 120 in the cockpit. And we would tie our ties around our head. We had the cockpit door closed, but it would look like Rambo. And we used to laugh about that. We'd have our legs all rolled up. But my buddy would always tell me, he goes, it's going to be a real gut buster today, real gut buster. That's what Kapas is. It's a gut buster. It's work that just absolutely leaves you exhausted. So these guys were exhausted in proclaiming the truth and standing against error. All right? Now, also notice the term perseverance. They persevered. Hupa Mone is the term for perseverance. It has to do with standing firm in the midst of trials, all because you really believe the promises of God. Why do you persevere? It's not because you're just pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's because you really believe the best is yet to come. You believe that God is faithful to his promises. So the reason I highlight these three is that indicates that these, at least the initial batch of Ephesian believers, they were the real deal. Okay, now that's further than exemplified by the fact, notice he says you cannot tolerate evil men Number one. But notice who these evil men are. They're those who call themselves apostles. He says you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. And you found them to be false. What's very interesting is that term test comes from Perazzo, And it means to test something to see if it's genuine. When we get to Revelation chapter 3 verse 10. That's one of the most important verses to all the churches. There's a lot of doctrine in it. In fact, we'll even get into grammar when we get into that. But Revelation 3.10, in fact, turn your Bibles to that. I'll cite it from my memory, but it'll be so close. I, I don't think it's, I'm too far off. Revelation 3.10, this is the church of Philadelphia. What I want you to see is how Perazzo is used regarding believers and unbelievers. Okay, yeah. you want me to read it? Oh, yeah, if you could, thank you. That'd be better yet. We got the mic right there. Because you see, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of the trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Read it one more time real slow. Thank you. Because you have kept my commandment, command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial. Stop right there. Notice the hour of trial. That trial is perasmas. That's the noun form of the verb test that you see here. Notice believers, at least in Philadelphia, are being promised exemption from the hour of trial. The hour of testing. Well, what is this hour of testing? Well, it's associated with the day of the Lord. So they're being promised to be kept from that hour, not just from the testing, but from the hour of testing. Okay? Now, the test is designed to show whether one's genuine or not. So think about it this way. In a real sense, you and I in this life, from the time that Jesus goes up in his ascension till the time that he comes to rapture the church, we might go through testing. And that testing is designed to show that our faith is genuine. But when the hour of testing comes, then you and I are going to be exempt from it. Now keep reading the rest of the verse again, I'm sorry. The rest of 310, right after that. Because now you're going to see who will be tested during this period of time. Which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. To test those who dwell on the earth. There's perazzo, but notice the testing is only for those who dwell upon the earth. That phrase is only of unbelievers. Okay? So my point is only unbelievers will ultimately go through the testing of the seven years. Here, what we have are these false apostles are being tested by the church itself and they're found to be deficient. They're not true apostles. Now, remember, Bob and I know we've talked about this numerous times, but there's four criteria that you had to meet in order to be an apostle. Number one... You had to be an eyewitness to the resurrection. First Corinthians 9.1. Number two, you did miraculous things. In fact, remember in Acts chapter 5, if even Peter's shadow would come across some, they would be healed. Okay, in uh, Acts chapter 19, if the handkerchief went from Paul to somebody, they would be healed. Why? Because they were some superstar, and you and I are, as I like when Bob says, we're a bunch of adults. No, it's not that. It's because God was verifying that these were His spokesmen. These were His spokesmen. So they did miraculous things. All right? They also were personally instructed by Christ. The initial batch of disciples were instructed for how long? Three years. Christ's earthly ministry. What's very interesting is how long was the apostle Paul instructed according to Galatians 1.18? three years, he's brought up to the same standard, isn't he? Remember, he says, I didn't consult a man. I didn't go up to Jerusalem. He was in Arabia, and he was instructed by Christ. So, he's brought up to the same standard. The fourth thing that you had to be is called. Okay, so the point is, if you didn't meet that criteria, you had to be called. Yeah, and remember, Paul always begins his epistles typically with Paul uh, called to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yep. Yep. So those four criteria had to be met. Now, I want you to, uh, who had the Hebrews 2? I handed that out. Oh, Robin does. Hebrews 2, and this is 3 through 4. What I want you to see is two of the criteria are listed. They were instructed by Christ, they heard him from the beginning, and they did miraculous deeds. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Yeah. So do you see that? Do you hear about the signs and wonders that they did? Those are some of the things I'm mentioning from the book of Acts, okay? So there were also those who heard him from the beginning, Okay. So, again, those criteria were not met with these apostles. These apostles were teaching false doctrine, and they did not meet the criteria. And so the Ephesian church did a wonderful job in saying, no, you're a $3 bill. You're not a genuine apostle. Now, the question we have to wrestle with are, who were these false apostles? We really have two choices. They were either Jewish legalists, because there was a large Jewish body there, or they were pagan antinomians. Okay, those are the two that scholars wrestle with. Now, what is an antinomian? Anti means against. Nomian comes from namas law. They'd be against the law. So you either have Jewish legalists that are saying, unless you're circumcised, unless you hold to the Mosaic covenant, you can't be right with God. That's exactly what Bob is addressing with the book of Galatians. Okay, I don't think that that's the issue here. Instead, we had pagan anti-Nobians, libertines who said you can live any way you want. Now, the way we know that is through the historical research into this church and that's what I want to turn to next. Let me set the stage for what was going on in the Ephesian church. Ephesus was called the most important city in the ancient world as far as merchandise and uh, as far as they called it an emporium where you would sell things. And that was listed as the most important city for the sale and the buying of goods and services, according to the Greek historian Strabo. Now, here's what happens to Ephesus. In Asia Minor, they're along the coast, and their harbor ends up being wrecked because they have a silting problem. The natural currents that affected its harbor brought in so much silt that the harbor becomes too shallow and they end up, can't, they can't use it anymore. They also suffered numerous earthquakes. And so those things combined ended up leading to the devastation at, of Ephesus really as a city. But here's what you have to understand. Ephesus is the headquarters of Artemis, the Greek goddess. Now let me just show you, uh, notice the picture that I have on the screen. That's supposed to be my form of artistry here. That is the temple of Artemis. It is one of the seven wonders of the world. In fact, that temple was so large, it was four times larger than the temple that was in Athens. It was huge. It was the size of a soccer field. Now, Artemis is also called Diana by the Romans. It's the same god or goddess, I should say. All right? Now, here's how you should think of Artemis. Artemis is really the contemporary in those days, of Baal and Asherah, because she is the goddess of fertility, and she is the goddess of hunting. And so if you wanted to have fertility for your your land or for your family, what you would do, and this is if you're a pagan, you would go to the temple, and they had temple prostitutes there, and they would engage in the sexual immorality, and the idea would be that Artemis would see that and bless you with fertility. Okay, can can you imagine how vile that was? So they had hundreds and hundreds of temple prostitutes that were engaged in that, trying to bring fertility to the land. So instead of trusting Yahweh, instead of trusting Christ to take care of you, these pagans are thinking they can incite Artemis to bring them fertility. Now, combine that fact with the idea that, remember who's the boss in those days? Who's the emperor? It's Domitian. Domitian is wicked. He forces every single person at least once a year to offer a sacrifice where you would declare there is no Lord except Caesar. And if you don't do that, you don't get your, your certificate. And therefore, you're going to be arrested and put to death. All right. Now, here's what I want to turn your attention towards the book of Acts. <laughs> You and I were talking about this the other day. Acts chapter 19, if you would turn your Bibles there. What I want to show you is that Ephesus is so wrapped up into the worship of Artemis. I think the best construction is this. If you worshiped Artemis, you were off the hook for having to worship Domitian. In fact, there's evidence, this scholar that I was reading, his name is Colin Hemmer, he cites evidence from the known world that of that day, if you worshipped Artemis and you were a pagan living in Ephesus, you didn't have to offer sacrifice to Domitian. Domitian didn't want to make enemies wherever he went. But here's the point. You either had to worship Domitian or you had to worship Artemis. And if you weren't going to do either, somebody would rat you out and you were going to get in trouble and you're going to be put to death. That was the issue. So let me show you how important Artemis worship was. Turn your... Bibles to Acts chapter 19, verse 23. Paul, remember he had gone into the synagogues, he had preached, he was largely rejected, but then he preached to the Gentiles, and many of them came to faith. In fact, up above, they got rid of their magical arts, they'd repented of those things. Well, listen to some of the reaction of the pagans that didn't repent and believe. Acts 19, 23, it says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, of course, that means the way of Christianity. Followers of Christ. He says, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul So, I just want you to see how significant Artemis was, at least in this man's estimation. Now, keep going. In verse 28, it says, When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So, there's this great controversy that erupts. Many of the pagans were rioting, so much so that there is a Jewish man that stands up. They won't listen to him. Well, finally, you have this city clerk. The city clerk in Ephesus has to stand up and quench the crowd because he is a liaison between the Romans and those at Ephesus. And he doesn't want to be in trouble with the Roman hierarchy, otherwise they can't self-rule themselves. So in Ephesians 19.35, it says, When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know, now this is the key phrase here, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians as temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone, some of your versions, by the way, will say statue, that fell from the sky. Okay, so here's the point. They were temple keepers of Artemis. They were renowned for that. So much so that Domitian didn't dare tinker with it. So Domitian would send out these certificates, and if you didn't sign off and sacrifice and say there's no lord except Caesar, you'd be arrested, But in these towns like Ephesus, if you're worshiping Artemis, they would give you the certificate. You're free. So just think about now a Christian who is being tempted with living this licentious lifestyle. Hey, why don't you go up to Artemis with me tonight? A pagan would say to a Christian. And we'll go see the temple prostitutes after all my field is looking a little withered. And the Christian says, no, I can't do that. Right away... Well, are you sacrificing to Domitian? No. All of a sudden, they're suspect, and they're perhaps going to be arrested and put to death. So along come these false apostles, and these false apostles argued for licentiousness. They argued to say, hey, why don't we join in with these pagan practices? After all, we live, they had an over-realized eschatology, meaning they believed that there was no resurrection coming. They believed that this was all there was. And so why can't we, with our bodies in this perfection that we have, live any way we want? We can engage in sexual immorality. It's not going to hurt anything. And after all, if we do that, then we're not going to be in trouble with the Ephesians. We're going to get our certificates. We're not going to be put to death, and everything's going to go swell with us. Do you see the attraction and the draw? That's what I think the false apostles were teaching. And we have evidence of that, that they were teaching sexual immorality because we're going to see that they're linked to the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were those who taught sexual promiscuity. So I think that's the situation that was going on at Ephesus. Why would you be tempted to partake with the false apostles and enter into the temple prostitutes? Because you wouldn't be put to death then. And they would reason, look, let's not tempt the Ephesian people to put us to death. Let's just... Do what they do. When you're in Rome, do what the Romans do. It's that sort of idea. Okay? I think that's what was going on. Now, let's move on then. I want to talk about the rebuke to Ephesus. The good thing was that they stood against these false apostles. We're going to come back to that because he returns back to the commendation. But now we're going to look at the rebuke. Revelation 2, 4 through 5. He says, but, and there's a strong adversative conjunction. He says, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So here they have their doctrine down. They're able to disprove these false apostles, and yet the rebuke against those at Ephesus is that they forgot their first love. Now, who is the first love? It's obviously Jesus. But remember, think about this. Acts chapter 9. The apostle Paul at the time was Saul. He's murdering Christians. And on the road to Damascus, remember, he's known for murdering Christians. And when he sees the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus says, Saul, remember Saul asks, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. So associated is the church with Jesus Christ. If you're persecuting a Christian, you're persecuting Christ. We really are his body. Do you see that? If you persecute a Christian, that's what Paul, Paul wasn't persecuting Christ outright. Christ is in heaven. He was persecuting Christians. But because he was persecuting Christians, he was persecuting the body of Christ. Therefore, he was persecuting Christ. So associated is Christ with believers that if you lose your first love, it may be the love of Christ, but it's also the love of the brothers and sisters. In fact, listen to what Jesus said. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. Jesus here is giving instruction to his disciples but by really extension to all of us here he says a new commandment this is John thirteen thirty-four through 35 a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another by this all men will know that you are my disciples now here's the condition if you have love for one another so the point is, if you don't have love for your brothers and sisters, you don't have really anything to do with Christ to you. In fact, we go on to... Now, you don't have to turn to this. Just jot this down. You can read it on your own time. 1 John 5, 2. John says this. He says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. So notice, if we observe the commandments... Of Christ we demonstrate love to him but we're also demonstrating love to what the brothers and sisters Jesus says if you love me you obey my commandments so the point is this these people here in Ephesus they could withstand these doctrinal issues with the false apostles they knew that they were false but they lost their first love they didn't love Christ it ended up being a show now let me tell you where this happened in my own life Bob really was instrumental in pulling me out of this. I was fighting so often. Remember, I go right from an airline pilot. I go to seminary, all excited to learn the word of God. And what do I run into day after day after day after day after day after day? And I'm spending money. (laughs) I'm spending money on this. I'm I'm paying for it. Every class I go into, I have to fight about whether you can know something is true. And I feel like I'm going delirious. And pretty soon, I don't grow weary, I grow cold. I grow cold because every single person that comes across me is now an apologetic project. And so no longer am I focused on the promises of Christ, who he is, what he's done, and the love, therefore, for my brothers and sisters as a result of it. Now everything's an apologetic mission, a mission to prove truth, a mission to do this. I got so wrapped up into that that I had to turn from it. And the one who helped break me out of that was Bob. Bob, I saw him preaching at Twin yeah, thank you at Twin City Fellowship, and you know what he was doing? He was preaching on the promises of God, verse by verse through the scriptures, and what that got my mind again on was who Christ was, why I love him because he first loved me, and also my love for my brothers and sisters who share in this salvation. I needed that that 's I think the issue with those at Ephesus. Yes, maybe the first generation were able to love and do all the apologetics. But over time, it was just a ritual orthodoxy. We hold to this. Here, do it. <laughs> and they fought well, but they lost their first love. Okay, now turn your Bibles. I want to show you this concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. By the way, as you're turning to that, let me mention something. Remember, we saw back in verse 3 John makes it very clear that they didn't grow weary. What's interesting is when you fight in an apologetic struggle, it's not that you grow weary, you grow cold. In fact, Jesus says this. Now, it doesn't mean you have to, but I mean you can. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24:12. He says this is about the last days in the tribulation period specifically. He says because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. That's the risk. When there's lawlessness, now lawlessness isn't just doing bad things. It's thinking the wrong way. When you're around that all the time, it's not that you just grow weird. You grow cold. That's the risk. Now listen to the remedy here. Again, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 2. I have to scroll down so I can see it myself. It's hard sometimes finding our cursor. There we are. Let me set the stage. Paul is addressing here. Corinthian believers who are boasting in their gnosis, their knowledge. And they know, because they're so knowledgeable, they're boasting in, they know that idols aren't anything, and therefore they eat meat that is sacrificed to idols, and they know that the idol isn't anything. The problem is there's weaker brothers and sisters who don't have that knowledge. And so by eating this meat that was sacrificed, it ends, ends up causing these weaker brothers and sisters to stumble. And these stronger Christians, these ones who claim to know, they didn't care about their weaker brothers and sisters. They would just eat away and watch them stumble. And what Paul is to say is that love? Now, listen to what he says about true knowledge then. In 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2, he says, now concerning. By the way, that's peridē. Remember we said that was the structural point in Matthew 24, 36? Now concerning. Do you remember that? That was the key issue in our Matthew twenty four. That's peri day. So you can see now he's addressing a new issue. Now concerning peri day, things sacrificed to idols. He says we know, gnosko, that we all have knowledge, gnosis. Knowledge, gnosis, makes arrogant, but love edifies. Well, let's stop there. Paul isn't saying necessarily that all knowledge makes you arrogant. In particular, it's these people's claim for gnosis. That's what they were boasting in. We have knowledge that the meat sacrificed idol isn't anything. We're going to eat it, and we don't care if it makes a weaker brother or sister stumble. We don't care because we have gnosis. Paul is saying that that gnosis, that knowledge, puffs you up. It makes you arrogant. But he goes on to say, he says, if anyone supposes... Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. Let me stop there. But notice he says, Love edifies. Literally, that means to build something up. So, the pretentious knowledge that these people had were tearing people down, but the love is designed to build up like build up a building. Now, listen to verse 2. He says, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. Now, remember, that's directed directly at the Corinthians who are claiming to have knowledge. But what Paul is saying is you really don't. Because if you had your doctrine down, you wouldn't eat of this meat that sacrificed idols because of the love of your brothers and sisters that are weaker. And so what he's saying is you don't really have your doctrine down. You don't really know as you ought to know. And that's what my claim would be regarding the church at Ephesus. They, yes, they fought the apostles that were false, but they didn't really know and have their doctrine down as they ought to know. Because if they had their doctrine down, it would lead them to love of Christ and the brothers and sisters. So when we don't love Christ or our brothers and sisters, it is a doctrinal issue. We don't know as we ought to know. If you look at people, um, a good example of this, Bob, you've mentioned this before. Bob confronted Rick Warren, I think, in a very loving way. He said, Preach the gospel. There were Christians who were mad at Bob, saying, Well, why would you even do that? Why don't you just stand out with us with a blowhorn and yell at him? Is that love? What good is it just to stand out with a blowhorn and say he's from Satan or from the devil? Okay, those are people that I would claim who had lost their first love. Okay? So that's the issue that I think is going on here at Ephesus. Now, what are the remedies of that? Well, he gives us three remedies. Now, remember, there was three groups of three with a commendation. Oh, thank you. I got a new job, I'll hold it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to prop you up. <laughs> you lick your finger. Yeah, I'll lick your finger, right? <laughs> <laughs> so notice now we have three things that the people of ephesus are to do first of all they are to remember remember amen that's what bob has been teaching us about all the means of grace function to enable us to do what to remember to remember the promises of god notice he says remember from where you have fallen they fell from a love of christ and his promises and therefore fellow brothers and sisters they fell from that they are to remember now, how do you remember? You get back into the Word of God. You get back to the means of grace. All right? But notice he says not only are they to remember, they're also to do what? Repent. Now, metana'o, the term for repent, remember, has to do with a change of mind and then a turning from anything false to faith in Jesus alone for salvation. If you're a believer and you're in a transgression, if you're caught in sin, Repentance has to do with turning from that sin and confessing it and turning back to the straight road of obedience. Okay, so they're to repent. Now, what does repentance look like for them? Well, they're to do the deeds that they did at the first. Now, we have to only surmise that these deeds had to do with it. Bob's going to be teaching us in Galatians 6.2 this morning, bearing one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. That's what you and I are to do for one another. Uh, there are many different things that we are to do. So the point is these deeds had to do with demonstrating love for brothers and sisters. Let's talk a little bit more about these deeds, this idea of works. Think about this. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, we know that we're saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, and all of that's by grace alone. In other words, our faith wasn't even of ourselves. That itself was a gift. But then in verse 10 it says, for we are His workmanship, this is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, meaning we're created in His sphere through the saving faith that was given to us. So we're in His camp, we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what we are to do. Okay? So we have to demonstrate our love by the things that we do by our actions. Doctrine and deeds go hand in hand. All right? Now, what does that mean then? Well, that means that if we tell the truth, we have to tell the truth in love. In fact, who had the Ephesians 4 14 through 15? Yeah, Brian. Everyone turn your Bibles, if you will, to Ephesians four fourteen through 15. And when they turn, yeah, I'll have you read it. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who is the head. Okay, do you hear that phrase, speaking the truth in love? Speaking the truth in the sphere of love. That's our mission as grown-up, mature Christians. That's what Paul's referring to there in Ephesians 4. So yes, we speak the truth, but notice it has to be, what, in love. That's a preposition of manner. How is it that we speak the truth? We do it in love. That's what Bob was doing with Rick Warren. What did those who lost their first love want him to do? Just yell at Rick Warren. That's all they wanted. Okay, we're to speak the truth. Yes, we're to do apologetics, but it has to be in love. Think of this analogy. You have a river, and the banks of the river are truth. And so if you don't have banks, you're going to have a very destructive flood. It's going to destroy things. Okay, that's if you don't have truth. But if you don't have water, it's like not having love. You've got what, you, you get yourself a dry gulch. You got banks, but what, what are the banks guarding? So what? You got yourself a dry gulch. That's what they had in Ephesians. They had the doctrinal standards there, but all they had was a dry gulch because they really didn't love Christ or the brothers and sisters. That was their problem. All right, so what are they to do? They're to repent and to do the deeds that they did at first, bearing one another's burdens, loving one another. And the only way you can do that is getting back to remembering. Remember who Christ is, what he's done for you. And therefore, you're focused now on the promises of God rather, just on, rather than just on error. All right? Now, let's go on to the return to commendation. All right, Revelation 2.6, he says, but, and there's a strong adversative again. So now he's contrasting what they did wrong to what they did right. He says, but, Allah, you do have this going for you. You hate what the Nicolaitans practice, practices I also hate. One of the things we have to wrestle with is who are these Nicolaitans? Well, the Nicolaitans apparently from church history came from Niklaus. Nicolaus was one of the deacons that you see in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Let me read what Irenaeus said. Irenaeus, he wrote this and is against heresies. Remember, Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, or at least knew Polycarp. Polycarp knew John the Apostle himself. So Irenaeus is a very powerful testimony. Irenaeus said this. He says, quote, The Nicolaitans are the followers of that Nicholas, who was one of the seven first ordained to the Deaconate by the apostles. They lead lives of unrestrained indulgence, and the character of these men is very plainly appointed out by John in the Apocalypse, as teaching that it is a matter of indifference when they practice adultery and to eat things sacrificed to idols, unquote. So we know that Irenaeus is claiming that the Nicolaitans, they would at least practice immorality, sexual immorality, and they came from this man named Nicholas who was this deacon. Now here's the issue. There's other good church historians who will say, no, Nicholas was fine. The Nicolaitans perverted what Nicholas had taught. Okay? So... You have some people saying, well, Nicholas wasn't so bad, and others saying, no, he was a heretic. Let me reconstruct that for you in just a moment. The big issue that we do know about the Nicolaitans is that they taught perversity. In fact, we're going to see this when we get to the church at Pergamum. Revelation 2, 14 through 15, this is what the Lord says to Pergamum. He says, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So the point is the Nicolaitans did the same thing that Balaam did. Now let's go back. Who was Balaam? Balaam, remember, was this false prophet. And he was asked and paid actually by the Moabite king Balak to curse Israel but God didn't allow him to curse Israel. And so Balaam knew that the Lord would never allow him to curse Israel, so the only thing he could do is tell the Moabites and the Midianites, if you want the Israelites to be cursed, let them bring cursings upon themselves. And so what Balaam taught was the way to curse Israel is to put the Moabite women and the Midianite women in the path of the Israelite men. And the Israelite men would go after them in sexual immorality, and therefore go after the false gods, and they'd bring the curse upon themselves. We have to remember that behind ultimately sexual immorality, especially at like you look at the temple, Artemis' temple, or in Israel's day, there's false gods. It's actually a linking to demons. That's what sexual immorality is all about. It's a linking ourselves. To the demonic realm in fact i'll be talking about this when we get to pergamum we're going to focus on that if you have teenagers bring them because we're going to talk about 1 corinthians 6 and how sexual immorality is an immorality that links us to the demonic realm all right that's what they were teaching all right now we know that god hates sexuality or Im- sexual immorality and he was obviously going to judge these Nicolaitans for it. Now, one thing I want to point out is, again, you have some historians that are saying this Nicolas was fine. He was not such a bad guy. It was that these Nicolaitans had distorted something he had said. Well, here's something that's very interesting to me. Balaam, his name means destruction of people. Balaam, that comes from Bela, which is destruction, Am is people. It's the destruction of people. So how did Balaam destroy the Israelites? Sexual immorality. Now, what's very interesting is Niklas comes from two terms. Laos is people. Niklaus is the oppressor. The Nicolaitans literally means the conqueror of the people or the oppressor of the people. And so let's just hypothetically think. Niklas, let's say he's not such a bad guy. He's mentioned as a deacon in Acts 6.5. Let's say he has followers that distort something he said. I think that perhaps John is using the Nicolaitan heresy because, yes, you had people that took supposedly the bad idea from Nicholas. But it's interesting, a play on words, isn't it? Balaam had seduced the people to fall. He's the destroyer of the people because he led them to sexual immorality. Nicholas did the same thing. You lead people to sexual immorality, it destroys them. It links them right to the demonic realm it destroys and so that's why it has to be taken so seriously so that may be what's at play here now what I want to do is I want to come back then to this invitation to the tree of life he has just commended them a second time God did through John now he invites them to the tree of life and here we have this famous phrase he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches let's stop there That's an invitation for all of us. Only Christians have an ear to hear. The unregenerate don't. They will not hear the things of God. So this is an invitation to how many Christians? To all of us. To him. It's a lot like John 3, 16, whosoever, right? So to he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, Clearly, we have an invitation that if you overcome, you're going to be given access to the tree of life. How do we overcome? Do we do that? It sounds like something we have to do. Well, it's not. Who had 1 John 5, 4 through 5? Yeah, Mary Alice. Here's what an overcomer is. Listen to this. Remember, it's written by John, the same one who wrote Revelation. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Okay, I'm sorry, keep going. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So how do you overcome? You're a believer in Jesus Christ because he overcame the world. All right, so how are you going to be an overcomer? You're going to believe in Jesus Christ. And what is he going to give you? He's going to give you access to the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, clearly, the tree of life that's being referred to here is a reference to Genesis. Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned, they are not allowed access to the tree of life? Think about it. If they had eaten of the tree of life, they would have life forever, God says, but they would have to be separated from God eternally. So it's really God's grace and his mercy that he keeps them from the tree of life. Well, now... Through the tree of life, we have access to it again, but we also have access to the paradise of God. What's very interesting in this passage is the tree of life, the term tree comes from Zulon. Zulon is the very term that's used oftentimes for the cross. So notice the term tree. The tree there is often referred to in the New Testament as the cross, Zulon. Who had the Galatians 3.13 passage? Yeah, Jim. Jim. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, but becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Zulon, tree. You're cursed if you hung on a tree. That comes from Deuteronomy 21.23. Okay, so Christ takes the curse. That's what Bob was teaching us in Galatians 3. That tree was the cross, Zulon. Um, you also had another passage, Jim. Was it the... Yeah, what, what, what one second Peter? was second Peter two? Is it two twenty four? I think. Second Peter two twenty four. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Right. Okay. So now we have another example of the tree. There, Zulon is the cross. Right. So what's interesting? Think about the play on words that John is using here. The tree that brought the death of Christ, Zula, on the cross, is our tree of life. And it gives us access, where? To the paradise of God. But John isn't just done there, making a parody, because what we have to realize is that in the culture of the day, in Ephesus, when you worshipped Artemis, Artemis was known for being a tree cult. In fact, their tree was the big symbol of what they called an asylum within the temple. And what that meant was that all these criminals could find asylum under the tree. Criminals from around the world would go to Artemis' temple and they would find under the tree that was a symbol of fertility protection because, after all, these criminals were at least good for linking with temple prostitutes and bringing fertility. And so they had exemption. So, in fact, here's why I have these pictures. Here's a coin that has to do with Artemis you see the bee? That has to do with fertility. Well then you can see you have a stag here, I think. Isn't that an animal there? But notice here you have a tree. Okay, that tree was in the temple itself. It was an asylum, meaning if a criminal went to Artemis' temple and they found the tree, they would not have repercussions for their sin. Was everybody following? Wow. Now, notice here, This is a symbol of Artemis here. It's a statue. Here's a bunch of acorns. Those acorns around her neck, that necklace, that comes from the tree of life, as it were. So Artemis distorted the tree of life. You could be a rabid criminal doing all these immoral things, and you could find asylum and protection, and you would never have to turn from your wickedness and your sin. But what the Lord Jesus Christ says is repent. Repent and become an overcomer by turning to me and I'll give you access to the true tree of life. The tree of life which gives you access to the paradise of God. And in this paradise of God, listen to what is said of it. Revelation 21, 27, and 22 2, it says, Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, Zulon again. So now you have the cross in the paradise of God, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Notice the contrast. If you were in Artemis' temple, you could be a criminal living a completely immoral lifestyle. And you'd have freedom, and nobody would ever get you. That's the kind of atonement that that tree led to. But that won't be tolerated in God's kingdom because he says, nothing in clean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. All right? Let me leave you with this. Fighting heresy is good. This is the big lesson that we learn. We have to fight heresy. We must do it. But we can't grow cold. And that means people aren't just apologetic projects, they're people to be loved, all right? Second, we have to realize that true doctrine leads us to love. Love for our brothers and sisters, love for one another. 1 Corinthians 8, two. if we don't love, we don't have our doctrine down. If you don't love Christ and you don't love the brothers and sisters, you don't know as you ought to know. Now, what do we do about it if we're growing cold? We remember. We go back to the promises of God in the Word of God. Remember who He is in the great promises. You will love Christ if you remember that you've escaped with freedom through the tree and now have access to the paradise of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the words that You've given to us through the Ephesians. We pray, Lord, that we would not fall into the trap that they did. We pray that we would be orthodox, that we would hold firm to the Great doctrines of the truth, that we would fight and contend for the faith, but we'd also ask Lord that you would preserve us in love, love for you, love for our fellow brothers and sisters, that we would have true doctrine that's pleasing to you into that last day. and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.